treasured listener welcome to another okay good great fantastic episode of how to win friends and influenza this is a podcast about life in medicine and i'm your host lily now they say that if life gives you lemons you should make lemonade but if life gives you melons then you might be dyslexic But it's strange that while we talk about low-carb diets, nobody ever talks about low-crab diets. And that seems quite relevant because cancer actually means crab, and it's a major concern in modern life. With increasing life expectancy, you're not as likely to get killed by a car crash as before, perhaps, but maybe your, your chance of a malignancy striking as your age goes on and on increases because you have more time for your cells to replicate, more time for cell mutations. So cancer is the star sign, but it also uh, relates to crab because when cancer invades, it looks a bit like a crab and that's where the name came from. So naturally, it's, it's one of the enemies of modern medicine and it's something that frightens us all. But that's why we have modern oncology, medical interventions to try and help us, perhaps not yet cure, but at least try and treat and handle and manage these conditions for patients and really ease their symptoms. So fortunately today we have Dr. Fran on the show to talk to us about medical oncology and what that involves. So Dr. Fran, welcome on the show. Hi Lily. Hello and thank you so much for your time. Now, first I'd like to ask you, what exactly does medical oncology cover? Is it just cancer? Medical oncologists are people who've trained as physicians and then specialised in cancer treatment, particularly with drugs. So it used to be all about chemotherapy. Now, of course, drug treatment of cancer takes a much broader spectrum, immune therapies, targeted therapies, etc. Some medical oncologists will treat blood cancers, uh, particularly in Melbourne, uh, but most medical oncologists treat what we call solid tumours, tumours of the solid organs, and leave those messy, wet blood tumours to the haematologists. So think of them as a bit like haematologists with a sense of humour and no desert boots, and that's your medical oncologist. Yeah, so haematologists who got to choose the kinds of tumours that they wanted to handle and they chose the solid ones. They chose the solid ones, that's right. What I find very interesting about medical oncology is that it's basically fighting this enemy. So when we think about specialties like cardiology, respiratory or renal, so they're, they're about the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, and sure, there are diseases that affect these organs, but in essence, they're celebrating these wonderful organs that we need for life. So what's interesting about medical oncology is rather than being dedicated to one single organ, it's really about knowing this enemy of cancer, which is ironically a person's own cells, but knowing the enemy and trying to find out how to destroy it. So I find that rather poetic. So what attracted you to this specialty in the first place? Well, I think one of the things about oncology is that it isn't restricted to just one body part or organ because cancer can affect the kidneys, the liver, the brain, etc. And also because research and treatment are so closely linked together. So I started out as uh, an intern and resident working in the Mater Hospital in Brisbane and did some oncology terms. And what you could see, this is back in the, the 90s, was in fact the 80s, <laughs> that you could see people learning so much more and being able to put that into practice really quite quickly because oncology's grown up in the era of the randomized trial and the era of genomics. It just didn't really exist before that. And so that ability to be a clinician but also a researcher uh, is one of the big attractions of working in medical oncology. The other big attraction, of course, is the patients. So mostly people with cancer want to get better And that can't be said of people with lots of other diseases where there actually are things they could do to help themselves that they don't do. And when I found it so frustrating looking after smokers with COAD and drinkers with liver disease, the cancer patients are the ones who go, I want to form a relationship with you and I want your help. Tell me what I need to do to help myself. And where's the team around me who's going to get on board and that's a massive attraction from the point of view of dealing with with 
motivated patients and relationships. And did you know that all along, that oncology would be your calling, or was it something that you maybe found through trial and error from your student or junior doctor days? It was not something that I thought about as a medical student. I was really planning to be a general practitioner. And in fact, before medical school, I was planning to be a vet. But my mother convinced me that it would break my heart uh, to be a vet. And a few years ago, she said, you know, I'm not really sure I had in mind you becoming an oncologist when I talked you out of being a vet, you know, because surely oncology breaks your heart. And of course it does, uh, because many of the people that we are looking after, we've known for a decade. They have ups and downs, their family fortunes, the milestones that they've reached or missed out on. And when they do die, it's really like saying goodbye uh, to an old friend uh, rather than someone that you've just been speed dating. Uh, Now, palliative care is like speed dating. And although I'm happy to look after my own patients when they're dying, I wouldn't want to look after someone else's patients when they're dying because you really take advantage of that long-term relationship and the communication you've had to ease that last part of life um, and patients develop trust and confidence in their treating team and that does help them at those really difficult times. So I wanted to be a GP, kind of got talked out of that and into doing some physician training and I really got to enjoy cancer patients when I met them. I think definitely the difficult times will be something that we'll talk about a little bit later because that is probably a whole topic in itself. But if we skip forward a little bit, let's talk about diagnosing and, and choosing the patients that sort of come into your caseload, if, if we can call it choice. So let's say there's somebody with uh, lung cancer. Do they come under respiratory or under oncology or both? Which diagnosis sort of takes precedence, the lung bit or the cancer bit? Uh, Lung cancer is a good example of something that's um, changing a lot because there's really a need for a multidisciplinary team approach right from the outset. So respiratory physicians may make the diagnosis, but so may a a bunch of other people. And increasingly, you know, a CT scan and a biopsy can be done without the need for a respiratory physician to do a bronchoscopy. Now, just on the quiet, respiratory physicians are depressing for cancer patients because the worst thing they see are lung cancer patients. But to an oncologist, lung cancer patients are just like anyone else. So the patients who seem to be confident and do the best are the ones who've never seen a respiratory physician. So nobody's ever said to them, get your affairs in order. Um, We've just talked about what we can do to help them. So your multidisciplinary team might include a surgeon, radiation oncologist, medical oncologist, and uh, a number of other supportive care uh, people They'll get together, look at the pathology, look at the imaging, and try and make the best decision for that patient's care uh, right from the outset. Now, I mostly treat breast cancer, and most of our early breast cancer patients come in via the surgeons. Again, we have a multidisciplinary team meeting, and we decide who needs drug treatment, at least based on theory, the guidelines. Uh, When you eventually meet the patient, of course, you may make a different decision because there may be something about them that means the guidelines don't fit, the trials don't apply, they've got something else wrong with them, uh, and there's a lot of negotiating to do. But at least from the perspective of supporting each other and cross-checking that nothing's been missed, those team meetings and their strategy has really become uh, very much a part of oncology care in the last few years. So in a way, nobody kind of owns the patient Uh, the team owns the patient. Fair enough, like shared custody of a dog or a cat. Shared custody. Exactly, and the patients will sometimes say, well, who's in charge of this bit? And I go, well, I'm very bossy. I'm in charge of this bit. Uh, But then I'll hand you back to the surgeon for the next bit that needs to be done. Now, patients with metastatic disease, a little bit different because they may come from a variety of directions, from a neurosurgeon who's fixed their back, and found a met from their GP. And up until now, they haven't always had that multidisciplinary decision-making approach, and that's something we're trying to implement at the moment. Yeah, now, a little bit earlier, you mentioned breast cancer. Now, with that, there is a somewhat established pathway to discovering it. There's uh, a lot of awareness of it. People uh, might check themselves, they might discover a lump. There's the triple uh, test 
for people to um, to figure out what investigative pathways to go down. So in essence, there is perhaps a stereotype for breast cancer. But say with other cancers, how are they generally brought to attention? Is it that someone will go to their GP with um, maybe general symptoms or will they find a lump somewhere or some other way? So there are a variety of other signs of cancer, of course, bleeding, um, sudden weight loss, a cough that doesn't go away, a headache that doesn't go away. And I think with increasing scanning, um, just in the general community, you now also see people whose cancer is diagnosed by accident uh, when they present with this unrelated symptom. Um, and of course, that can be a big advantage because they're picked up earlier sometimes. Um, pancreas cancer is always the classic that's hard to diagnose, has very non-specific symptoms and has a poor, um, generally poor outlook uh, as a consequence because it's often much more advanced. So cancer's on the outside of you, easier than one's deep on the inside. Yeah. And have you found any to be particularly more difficult than the other? For example, an incidental finding versus a patient whose symptoms have been going on so perhaps they suspect something is amiss? I think sometimes the hardest ones are the ones where the patient doesn't feel sick at all and the cancer is a huge shock to them. From the perspective of managing cancer, probably the most difficult um, are brain tumours because they affect people's decision-making, cognition, personality sometimes. Um, I was a brain tumour doctor for a good while um, and when I started looking after people with melanoma, I figured I couldn't cope with two poor prognosis cancers um, that was back in the day when melanoma had no treatment uh, and so I stopped treating patients with brain tumors but you would I think all of us would probably fear something that affected our sense of self um, perhaps even more than our body image uh, in some other way yeah and that leads to a whole other discussion about whether your sense of self is connected to the soul or connected to the mind. And that leads us into the whole spiritual discussion of it. So have you learnt any profound lessons perhaps from any of your patients or any of your experiences? Uh, I think our patients teach us uh, lessons every day and the amazing way that people cope with um, stressful situations and decision-making um, is myriad. They don't come to cancer from a level playing field. People bring whatever baggage um, they've had of past decision making, past mental health problems, for instance, anxieties and family problems to the cancer spectrum. And so you can't treat the cancer in isolation from all the rest of that. Uh, now, I discovered the other day when I was looking through my clinic list and have a new registrar who's just started a week or two ago, and I'm trying to protect him a little bit at the moment, not scare him off. And I was looking down the list and I was dividing the files into two piles, the crazy and the not crazy. And I was taking the crazy ones and giving him the not crazy ones. Can and I just ask crazy in what sense? And I, I found myself thinking about that because uh, they may be people who are more neurotic, uh, who are more uh, anxious, who perhaps have been patients for a longer period of time when we haven't had a registrar. So they've decided I'm the only person who can answer their questions rather than more recently diagnosed patients who've known that we've had a registrar here and often see them as a great resource. Uh, but they might also be people uh, with, you know, quite genuine mental health issues and where probably my experience is valuable in helping comfort them and reassure them. Uh, so he thinks he's in, you know, the best possible position, having a lovely time and, you know, scarily it will descend on him shortly that he's getting the better end of the spectrum, the easier patients. Um, but uh, I think... There are people who are more difficult and you have to be a bit cunning in working out how to get the best outcomes for those people, not straightforward. Any tips with doing that? Well, I think listening uh, is one of the profound gifts that we give our patients. Uh, many people find just the ability to have a download uh, helps them cope uh, they know the oncologist is interested 
in how they feel about their cancer, how it's affecting them, whereas their family may want to move on and they may have had enough. They may not be coping themselves. And uh, I mostly look after women, of course, and so you know they usually say just to have someone listening to me is, is such a precious gift. So listening is something that you convey not just by shutting your mouth and being quiet. Uh, we have what we call the Labrador pose and of course we're not on video so I can't quite demonstrate it but if you imagine that your dog is um, watching your every move and they're just lying with their feet out in front of them perhaps crossed uh, at the ankles and their head tilted on one side and they're just watching and thinking about you and nobody else. Now this might be because you've got food in your hand if I do have a Labrador, um, but that sense that you put down your pen and you stop typing on the computer and you just be there for that person is something that people really value. So that's one of the things I've learned and particularly if you like difficult people often find nobody's listening to them anymore and that can change the way they behave and think. Uh, I think the other thing is being open to people's different interpretations of why they got cancer. So in the spiritual realm and the scientific world and the pragmatic world, we don't really know why anybody gets cancer. Even people with inherited gene mutations don't always get cancer. And there are people who get so stuck on that why me question that they just cannot move on and make sensible decisions. So although it's good to reflect for a time on things that could be changed, uh, smoking or alcohol or whatever, in most cases people need to be able to put that aside and go, don't know why, what are we gonna do about it? And there are people who die still saying, why me? And it is the most distressing Whereas the people who can say, well, moving on, tell me what to do, get the theory, examine the data, ask 100,000 questions, but give away the why me question. And the why me question can have spiritual significance uh, for people. What have I done wrong in my life that this has happened to me? Uh, have I offended God or... Uh, however I see that. Uh, so that's probably the hardest thing is when people get stuck in that space. Um, and I don't think oncologists are terribly well equipped to deal with that. That's psychotherapy time. Uh, so we would rely on our psychologists to help in that circumstance. Okay, so what I gather from that is a couple of things. So I'm, I'm deducing this one. You mentioned the Labrador pose, but I don't think bringing food to patient consultations will go down very well, will it? No, but they sometimes bring food to me, which is always ah, welcome. Well, that's awesome. Um, secondly, I gather that listening is a huge, um, hugely important practice in being perhaps any kind of doctor, but especially in oncology, which leads to the question, can everyone learn to be a good listener? Or do you think certain students and doctors are predisposed for certain specialties for example is someone with naturally more outward empathy um, perhaps better suited to be an oncologist i think they probably are i think there is the sort of natural selection and the people who tell us that actually are the actors we work with in communication skills training because uh, medical oncologists have a national um, communication training program which we run through Pam McLean Centre at Sydney Uni and so each year we get to see the new trainees and work with them uh, in a workshop about difficult oncology um, issues and then our actors go off and work with other people orthopaedic surgeons plastic surgeons what have you and they come back and they go oh those oncology registrars they were so nice <laughs> uh, so I think there is it's a natural selection it's not a procedural specialty so although giving chemotherapy is our procedure and at the moment it has an item number attached to it, the MBS is trying to destroy that, but at the moment it's got an item number, that can be done by a nurse and usually is. Uh, so we're supervising the patient's chemo. We're not actually putting in the drip and giving it. We're not doing any other kind of scopes. We don't 
do any procedural stuff. All I need to go to work is a pen, basically. And you've got one here. And I've got Very one well here. And so all I need is a pen, a stethoscope, a tendon hammer maybe. So it's not the sort of specialty for someone who wants to spend a few half days a week in an operating theatre with unconscious patients putting something up or down them. And I think therefore people who are more interested in communication uh, probably are attracted to the specialty. Now, having said that, we can all learn to be better communicators and may all have habits that are getting in our way of being the best communicator. And that's where communication training comes in because someone's watching you and they can go, ah, when you put your hand over your mouth like that, they can't hear you. Uh, so that kind of thing is something that you're often not aware of. Okay. And you mentioned that all you need to go to work is a couple of important tools, a pen, a stethoscope, some other equipment. What does a typical day consist of then? Uh, well, I have um, <clears throat> three days a week that I see patients in my consulting rooms just across the road from the hospital, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And then I have two days I work for the university. So that includes... Um, supervising a research and clinical trials program here at the MARTA, teaching communication, teaching medical students, and uh, also being involved in the national and international uh, research efforts in breast cancer particularly. Um, so those are my two sanity days um, to help break up the week because after a 12-hour day in the clinic, I'm a bit smashed, to be honest, and tired and don't really want to hear about anyone else's problems and just glad the dogs and the husband are happy when I get home. Um, but I have my sanity days in between to break that up. And it was something my father told me uh, when he was a GP many years ago, that to have something that you're paid for that doesn't involve facing a patient at the desk to break up your week is actually really important for your mental health and I guess I've taken that on board. Now, some specialties such as obstetrics, people have the view that there's a lot of on-call. You're basically always at work in a sense. There are a lot of hours. How would you rate oncology, I suppose, uh, as a trainee and as a consultant in terms of hours? I think most people work pretty long days and it's not that easy to work part-time uh, because people will still want to find you and have problems solved on the days that you're not at work or the days you're working somewhere else. I did get two calls in the night about febrile patients last night. That's a bit unusual. So the main thing we would get called about is someone with a fever uh, because if you're on chemo and your white cells are low, fever's our emergency. And mostly I can give instructions over the phone about what needs to be done. It would be rare that I would need to come in to see a patient at night. And we work in a group of six um, haematologists and oncologists, so we share the on-call on weekends. So one person will be on, we'll do the ward round and take calls from outpatients. I don't think it's something you can do by yourself or even with two people because the on-call um, actually would be quite demanding. So you need to find some way of working in a group, I think. Okay. And what about as a trainee, say as a registrar? Are the hours any different? The hours would be shorter for the trainees and uh, there's a fair amount of flexibility within the oncology training program so they can do some palliative care, some haematology, some uh, radiation oncology if they want to and they can also do a year of research uh, as mostly clinical trials but sometimes laboratory research in that three years of training so people do try to move around to different hospitals and see different ways of doing things. Uh, they don't usually go out of main cities, uh, not in New South Wales at any rate. In Victoria they do. Uh, but everything's kind of closer together there. So it's not like surgical training where you know you're going to be all over the countryside dragging your family with you. You're more likely to be able to live in the one place for your training. Right. And at the moment we're talking about selecting specialties and Perhaps it's a game of knowing whether the specialty is right for you, but also if the specialty chooses you. So do you think there are any ways that people could figure out if they're not suited to oncology, any markers? Because the interesting thing is you could think that you have wonderful bedside manner, 
but unless someone gives you feedback, you might not know. So how can people test the waters? Uh, well, I think uh, often people will have an experience of oncology during their clinical years as a medical student, and we have students here for a month at a time from Sydney University, and I think they get a pretty good idea of how we live and what we do, and are often very surprised at how well a lot of the patients are and how amazingly they're coping. They're often humbled, I think, uh, at the generosity of patients um, talking with them and sharing their thoughts when really terrible things are happening to them. Uh, so the students often find um, that a really much better experience than they perhaps thought it was going to be. Um, I think as an intern or resident, uh, doing an oncology term would be helpful and all basic trainees will generally do um, some oncology as part of their BPT program. So I think people get an idea reasonably soon whether they're a procedural type person or not and probably the closest specialty to medical oncology would be something like psychiatry um, in the sense that uh, if you're someone who's a bit interested in psychology and uh, interested in how people cope with illness it's quite a fascinating uh, area to work in. You also don't make a massive amount of money um, and we're probably going to earn less money uh, when the MBS review comes through. Uh, so although chemotherapy keeps on ticking the whole year round and doesn't have uh, holidays the way some of the surgical specialties do, uh, you don't make a massive amount of money. So it helps to have a partner who's got a job and um, not be the sole breadwinner uh, because oncology uh, can be a little bit challenging compared to this procedural specialties. It's not as bad as rheumatology. <laughs> well, that leads us to another topic, which is that you have a successful career and a successful family with some kids who are also successful in their own ways. So what was your secret to making it all work? Uh, I think progressing of lowering of standards is very important. Um, so you can't afford to be too much of a neatnik. Um, and you have to work as a team at home in the same way you do at work. So uh, not being too controlling and making sure that your partner is, um, you know, really involved with the kids right from the beginning. So um, it, it really uh, is a job for two people, I would say, raising kids with an oncology career. I had my twins during my PhD, uh, so I'd finished my physician training and got my NHMRC scholarship and everybody instantly aims to get pregnant in the old days when that happened uh, because it's the only time you've got three years of guaranteed money and the flexibility of doing a PhD means you can move things around uh, your kids' needs much better than you can in a clinical job. So uh, when they went to school, I went back to pretty much full-time work and my PhD was finished uh, by then. Can I just say it probably wasn't intentional, but I suppose having twins was quite efficient for the child oh, It was fantastic. <laughs> I've spewed for months, but it was otherwise fantastic. And once they were out of special care, you know, we didn't look back. Um, so uh, my husband used to take them to childcare um, at his hospital and uh, that meant that he had to take responsibility for managing the, you know, their febrile or their vomiting or whatever type calls during the day. Uh, we also moved very close to where I now work and I'd really recommend that because the killer is the commute. And so if your kids are nearby and work is nearby, you know, you gain an extra couple of hours a day and that can be challenging and expensive, but I think has really paid us back. Um, my kids, fortunately, are very nice and um, creative and fun and still like us. So I see that as a big achievement. And probably having a medical spouse, my husband's an ophthalmologist, uh, is helpful. Now, having said that, Ophthalmologists are the world's most pragmatic people. So if I come home from a long day at work and he says, oh, you know, how was your day? And I say, oh, my three favourite patients died today. He'll say, what would you like for dinner? 
And it took me a while to realise that that was his way of saying, I'm sorry and I love you and you're doing a good job, but I can't fix any of that, so I can fix your dinner. And so realising that people show that they care in ways that may not be your natural way, I think is probably a secret to a good marriage. And therefore you need someone else to talk to when your three favourite patients have died. Uh, about how that affects you so having a mentor having people at work um, who can listen to your download when you're distressed I think uh, is important because then you're not loading that on your spouse yeah now it is quite interesting that on a medical podcast we're talking about your marriage but there is a reason behind this and there is a reason that we're calling it an achievement so I already know the answer to this because we were talking about it beforehand but Is it unusual for marriages to last in the medical profession? I think there are a lot of stresses on marriages uh, in medicine, particularly for women with children. And I have really quite a few very talented colleagues who've been through hell uh, with non-medical spouses not really understanding the demands of the job. Now, that doesn't mean you have to marry a doctor, um, but I think having that person ready to support you and realizing there are times in your career where one of you needs some more leeway to travel to be involved at a national level on committees and the like the other one can't really be doing that at the same time uh, because somebody's got to be home and so there have been times in our marriage where my husband was offered a position on his college council and I was on mine and we just had to say no Um, Now, he'll do that in due course because I'm over it and don't need to do that anymore. So I was kind of pacing yourself. He's doing his PhD now, whereas I did mine when I was young. So I'm supporting him um, and taking more of the burden of looking after the household so that he can study on the weekends. So I guess that sense of trying to work out when you're going to do things and not trying to clash them at the same time. Another thing that that I often notice is that people let go of their outside interests and their friendships because they're just so busy and I think that's actually not terribly healthy. So um, trying to make sure that you do have some time to catch up with friends to do some exercise. I sing in a choir, that's my therapy group. Uh, So we've done quite a lot of work through the Pam McLean Centre looking at burnout uh, in people who work in oncology and what are some of the predictors of that. And I think losing yourself um, by either being too close to the patients and uh, really being right in the midst of their suffering uh, or distancing yourself from them and... um, treating them a little bit like impersonal you know objects floating past on a conveyor belt are both things uh, that aren't healthy for the patient relationship and there's a there's a kind of happy midpoint uh, where you're close enough to see and understand what the patient's going through uh, but you're not feeling it yourself and you can still be strategic in helping them seeing the big picture but not so far away that the coolness creeps into the relationship. And I think you learn that by getting it wrong and finding that there are patients who um, either you just really like or they're very needy and you identify that they need more help than others, kind of suck you into a closer relationship uh, than is really useful. Uh, And there are also people who are a bit repellent for whatever reason and you're a bit too far away. And that can be either way something that makes the job harder. So uh, one of the things that we use in teaching about this is um, Lord of the Rings, which of course is the answer to all of life's problems. If you haven't read it or seen the movies, you treat yourself as a as a professional development exercise. A nine-hour-long professional development, development exercise. exercise. Well, the key bit to focus on is the, the about half an hour before the end of Return of the King. 
where Frodo, who's the patient, is climbing Mount Doom, trying to destroy the ring, which is the cancer, and he's got Sam, who's his um, intimate carer, trying to help him. And then outside the Black Gates, you've got the team all lined up, oncologist, surgeon, GP, etc. And then right back in the White City, you've got a couple of people who've been injured on the battlefield and are talking about the weather and are clearly, you know, way too far away. And if you think about the team outside the Black Gates, they're still working for the patient. They know what he needs. They can see what needs to be done. They're totally connected, but they're not on Mount Doom with him in the way that a patient's intimate carer would be. And I've written about this in one of the oncology journals, um, triggered by a conversation I had with a patient uh, when Return of the King came out. And uh, she came to the um, consultation and she pulled off her hat and she said, I, you know, I look like Gollum. I've got three hairs on my head and I'm skinny and uh, ugly. And um, I said, oh, that's, that's horrible. Is that really how you're feeling? And she went, no, 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 because I've got a Sam. I've got my husband. He's the person who's with me all the time. So I'm Frodo. I'm not, I'm not uh, Gollum. And, and I said, oh, yeah, okay, so where am I? And she went, oh, outside the Black Gates, where you're meant to be, trying to work out what's right for me to do next. And it made me realise that in the stories of people trying to deal with evil and trying to make good things come out of bad situations, there's plenty to support us in art, in literature, in music, you know, these are not unique human struggles that people have against cancer. They're part of a bigger picture. And we can learn from those areas. We can learn from models of teamwork in other disciplines and in sport and so forth. Things that make for good teamwork and things that make for good relationships with patients. And thinking about that helps people to manage burnout so that if they are in too deep someone will pull them out uh, or if they're not connected enough someone will call them on it from within the team and that's why working in a place that you choose that isn't a toxic workplace uh, where the people around you you can trust um, to watch you as well as the patient um, is critical to surviving so that's why I work here at the MANA. That's why I don't work where I worked before, uh, which had become a toxic workplace and it didn't feel safe uh, for me or for the patients. So those are difficult decisions to make. If you feel you're struggling, sometimes it's not you. <laughs> it's, it's the toxic workplace. And coaching, getting an outside view, seeing a psychologist, they're all things that are helpful to people in discerning where they need to go with their career and whether they're in the right place or not. So feeling like you've failed if you hit the wall, I think is something we need to get over. And I think uh, it's an opportunity to say, what do I need to do differently if I'm going to survive in this industry and be a good doctor? Um, I need to do some work on myself perhaps, or I need to get out of here and yeah. find somewhere better. So that sounds like a great thing to think about that, there are two things. One is working on yourself, making sure you have the right response and you're handling things in a really sustainable way. And secondly, checking that the environment around you is also a helpful one. So it's really two parts of it. Now, when people think about cancer, there are often a couple of big questions. So just to recap them, one is they will wonder, how do you cope with the difficult situations? I think you've answered that really well. You've talked about support from family. You've talked about changing your environment, getting support from colleagues. And another question people often have is um, how do you, uh, you know, distance yourself from patients appropriately? Should you be very close? Should you not be very close? And you've given us this excellent Lord of the Rings analogy. So you've answered those two questions. Now, the third question people often have is how do you break a cancer diagnosis to a person? How do you make it um, carry the point across that it is something serious without trying to destroy their world any more than you have to. Uh, look, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because uh, oncologists are usually not the people who tell someone they've got cancer. Somebody else has usually done that upstream. So by the time you're going to an oncologist, you usually know you're in deep shit 
in fact um, nobody ever wants to come and see us uh, but uh, that helps us in a way because we're the fix-it people and people have usually already distressed and we're going to tell them what we're going to do about it so I think one of the ways that we help people is by putting some structure and some safety and a plan around what can seem like a very chaotic uh, situation and people usually leave their oncology consultation feeling better they may have discovered that they need chemotherapy and everyone's terrified of chemo that's completely rational and nobody wants to have chemo if you can think of something better to do but allowing them to realize what the benefits of that might be and that there's a process and safety around that uh, I think helps people to feel better in a difficult situation now sometimes what we are offering and we know it's not perfect is so at odds with the patient's worldview that they just can't come to grips with it so for instance someone whose worldview is based on never letting anything toxic into their body um, being a vegan because um, they're very concerned about any kind of contamination um, wanting to try a very natural approach to their health care often are people of course who turn up with worse cancer because they haven't been in screening and may find it incredibly difficult to face the thought of chemotherapy which they see as poison effectively and so there's a, a, a workaround solutions often have to be made to get people to trust you you may need to do something to start with that perhaps isn't optimal but at least build a little bridge of trust and they start to see some results then chemotherapy may become a possibility downstream now some people still can't get it and that's sad because their outcomes will usually be worse and they'll usually suffer more and so I suppose it's those patients who just can't get on board with any kind of medical system um, who really we still worry about a lot and often feel a sense of failure um, perhaps as a community that we haven't been able to uh, help people make good decisions um, about their health care now that's not to say that the average cancer patient doesn't use complementary therapies because they all do and so you just need to ask them what they're doing not whether they're doing it what are the common ones do do people use acupuncture homeopathy naturopathy somethingopathy yeah well the ones that work um, include acupuncture and um, some of the dietary supplements can be very helpful and uh, there are people of course you discover in the process of diagnosing their cancer that they've got other problems that you need to fix to improve their general health uh, meditation relaxation um, seeing a psychologist those are all things that are really productive the things that are not evidence-based um, are naturopathy and some of the herbs and spices have the difficulty that they interact with chemotherapy and radiotherapy and make it less effective I just have to say when you said herbs and spices I immediately thought of cooking in the kitchen it just sounded really delicious well turmeric is the new I don't know black really uh, and so everybody's taking turmeric including me um, for my dodgy knees uh, so everyone's on turmeric and uh, cannabis oil of course is the is the modern panacea and lots of cancer patients uh, are using cannabis oil probably if anything it may help their symptoms it's unlikely that it's doing anything about their cancer treatment and that's or not sorry their effectiveness of their anti-cancer treatment uh, and that's a challenge um, to make sure that the correct clinical trials are done to investigate that. So what do you do if a patient is using very non-evidence-based uh, measures? Would you try and address that or would you sort of leave it as part of their autonomy? Like how do you tread that fine line between giving good medical advice but letting the patient decide their own fate with all the information they have? Uh, I usually try and steer them towards some of the more useful um, strategies and be really upfront about what does and doesn't fit 
with standard treatment and there's a wonderful website called About Herbs uh, on the Memorial Sloan Kettering website which I direct them to and say everything you're taking has to be looked up there to know whether it's got side effects and interactions and I think just the fact that you've taken it seriously um, helps people to fess up more to what they're actually doing Um, but there are people who I think it's their world view as much as anything about um, conventional medicine uh, that doesn't allow them to to engage with cancer treatment and those are the people that they're, they're the tip of the iceberg but they certainly are very concerning and are there any people that you've come across who absolutely refuse all treatments and actually prefer um, to not go through any of that there are and uh, there are people who I think probably wisely refuse um, treatment that's not likely to help them very much perhaps based on age or other um, medical uh, conditions and I think they sometimes imagine that they're going to die very quickly and it'll all be over soon and apart from pancreatic cancer um, it doesn't usually seem to work out that way so um, mostly those people tend to die fairly slowly and sometimes more painfully than than they need to and at least you need to try and get some palliative strategies in place so continuing the relationship with them is actually really important so what you don't want to do i think is do the right you're out of here if if it's my way or the highway um if you won't have chemo i've got nothing to offer you i probably wouldn't ever say to a patient i've got nothing to offer you um because we always have something to offer even if it's our time and our listening uh so i think you know that is not a good way to go generally how would you break the news if the chemotherapy or other treatment wasn't working very well and you see a bit of a downward trajectory Uh, what we try to use is a technique called forecasting and the idea behind this is that whenever you start a new treatment you forecast that there may be more than one possible outcome so that you're not leaving it to that moment of the bad scan to say oh it's not working but you're actually before you order the scan saying to the patient if the scan is good we're going to do this if the scan is okay we're going to keep doing what we do now if the scan isn't good this is what we're going to do so having that plan b c d e uh, is actually really important for people because scans terrify waiting for results is frightening feeling like you're going to drop over the edge of the world um, if the blood test isn't right is awful for people and i think it's a fairly common mistake that oncologists make is that they don't talk about the plan b now nearly always there's a plan b and so it's really much better to be upfront about that before you actually put people at that decision point right and so it comes down to knowing what you're going to do in each likely or possible event for example with hiv testing there used to be that very strong notion of informed consent where you would have to know what you were going to do if the test was positive versus if the test was negative and of course that's still there but it's a little bit less rigid now yes yeah Yeah. and i I do quite a lot of second opinion consulting uh, which i like and um I think it's very helpful to just get a piece of paper and chart out what all of the possible options might be for that patient. They may be doing perfectly well on the treatment they're on right now, but they've got no idea what's in front of them or ahead. And their own oncologist says, yeah, your blood count's fine, you're going all right with the chemo, off you go to chemo, and doesn't sit and have that conversation about the bigger picture. And once you've given people the bigger picture and they know there are options, their terror level tends to drop um quite significantly yeah now just to finish off let's talk a little bit about the more human side of it all which is that when people get a life-changing diagnosis such as cancer it could easily make them rethink a lot of things in their life go through a whole spiritual journey perhaps consider things that they might regret so a couple of things might come to mind you might you know, you might regret that you didn't hold on to the person that you loved. You might um, regret not taking more beautiful walks in the park. You might regret not listening to this podcast enough. What are the common things that people often say to you when that moment happens? 
People often reevaluate their lives and it's the commonest thing people say is it was a wake-up call and they might have early breast cancer, most of them are going to survive, um, so they're not going to die of their cancer, but it's a um, sentinel event in their lives where they reevaluate diet, exercise, the loved ones around them who may or may not be undermining them and may or may not need the flick, um, their job and how that's impacting on family life and the levels of stress that they're under. And so I would commonly see people wanting to work on those things as well as on the cancer itself. Mostly that's a good thing because it's going to improve their health in the future and they'll look back on that cancer event as something that really made a difference to their overall health and hopefully happiness. The other situation that's a bit different is people with advanced cancer who know their time may be limited and who want to know, can I get to see the Northern Lights? Can I take this cruise in the Antarctic? Can I take my whole family on my frequent flight points to New York in three years' time? So I have a sort of second career as a travel agent and I have on my desk a crystal ball. And so when people say, oh, I know you don't have a crystal ball, I say, oh, I do, I do, what would you like to know? And in that moment, they reveal the things that are most important. So they might say, I've lived with this guy for 20 years, but we've never got married. If we planned a wedding in six weeks' time, would that be fine? Uh, How can we get to that? How can I get to the Northern Lights? How can I do things with my grandchildren? I need not to be in pain. I don't want to lose my hair because it'll frighten them. And so people then will tell you about their values and you can make much better decisions when you understand their values. So the crystal ball is very helpful for that. It helps people to ask questions that reveal what's important to them. It's a cheap communication aid. The glass ones work just as well as the beautiful crystal ones and I'd recommend everyone have one on their desk. So you've heard it here first that medicine and fortune telling make a great multidisciplinary team. Yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fran. You've given us some really integral insights into medical oncology and some of your behind the scenes tips and tricks on how to become a better doctor. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Lily. And it's um, been great talking to you. Thank you. And we'll see all our listeners in the next episode. Mm